Welcome to another episode of Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, law professor Jessica Levinson from Loyola Law School. This episode, we are joined by LA Times reporter Seema Mehta. I'm so happy that you are here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. We have about 30 minutes and only 17 hours of questions. So (laughs) away we go. Luckily, I speak really, really fast. (laughs) It's pretty rare to be able to talk with someone who's covered four presidential campaigns. And clearly, this one is like no other in the past. And it's probably a bit obvious, but what's one of the biggest challenges in covering a presidential campaign in the middle of a pandemic? I mean, this even before all of this happened, if this was going to be a campaign unlike any other, um, given the president, his sort of unusual, unconventional method of of campaigning compared to past you know Republican candidates, um, and then with the pandemic, I mean, it's like a campaign without a campaign. You know, the things we traditionally do, attending rallies, talking to voters. You can't because of you know because of health concerns. Um, you know, we're, usually you'd be you know flying across the country, you know, talking to voters in battleground states, you know, about the issues that matter to the most. You can't, and you know, it's, it's nice to talk to you know professors like yourself, um, and you know, and political experts. But you know, really digging into communities and talking to people about you know what matters to them—that's one of the things like I feel like we're really missing out on, and one of the things I miss the most. And also, I mean, seeing you know, yes, the president has had a couple rallies, and and. Um, Former Vice President Joe Biden is having some events here and there, but seeing a candidate, you know, deliver speech day after day after day, week after week, you can really tell like how is their message changing? What are they focusing yeah. on today that they weren't focusing on before? And all of that nuance is sort of God. I mean, yes, you see the president in the White House, and and you see Joe Biden doing these virtual events and doing some, you know, some smaller events here and there. It's really just not the same. And so, like, I, you know, it's. And it's, none of us have ever covered a campaign like this, so it's it's very strange to cover it from. You know, we're all covering it from our living rooms. You know, it's, we're traveling a little bit here and there. We're starting to travel again, um, but it's just it's just unlike any campaign you know ever before in our lifetimes. Does it seem to benefit one candidate over the other? This campaign without a campaign. Um, well, I mean, the president's team clearly believe that's you know they're making fun of Biden for you know hanging out in his basement, so. They appear to believe that in some way it benefits them, but if you look at the polling, then that does not appear to be the case. Although we're four months out, polling now is going to be totally different than it was. You know, will be in November, and I think Biden's team would argue that it benefits them because you have the president, um, in their view, failing to deal with the pandemic. Isn't it like everything else in America in 2020? If you support the president, then you think X, and if you support exactly. Vice President Biden, then you think Y, and it doesn't really seem to break along. Uh, anything other than the partisan lens that you bring right. to the campaign. And, and I think, you know, it's, that's been happening you know, more and more in recent years, but it just seems, it feels like, and I know we always say we're more polarized than we've ever been, but it feels like that. So you are out there, at, not just every four years, but you're out there talking to voters and I follow you on social media and I actually get to know you and we get I get to talk to you personally. And I really do see that you love talking to voters and you love just talking to the people who determine the elections. And that's one of the things I want to ask you about. It, does it just seem to me that we're more polarized or are we really more? And, and if you can, what accounts for that? I mean, I think we you know we are more pol- more polarized. Like, while the internet's a wonderful thing, and um, having eighty million channels on cable television is a wonderful thing, it's allowed us all to retreat to our little holes where we can just listen to people that agree with us. And so, I think that that's you know it's made our lives sort of 
while it's created all, you know, you can read a newspaper around the world, you, you know, you can see a TV show from around the world. It's offered all these opportunities, but it's allowed people to sort of retreat into where they're most comfortable. Um, that said, you know, it's like when you go out and talk to voters, the vast majority of people are not sitting there watching cable television for eight hours a night. Like they're, you know, working and they're trying to feed their families. They're trying to, you know, figure out how to pay for their kids' college. I mean, there's like, we're, we're a lot more alike than we are different, you know, and, but so it's, it's, I think there's two sides of it, but, but I do think that because of particularly cable news, and I, I don't mean to, you know, to criticize my, my, my fellow journalists, but I think particularly because of the, you know, the need to fill 24 hours of, on, on cable news channels with people screaming at each other, that that has sort of made things worse. Yeah, I have to say that I actually breathed an audible sigh of relief when you said that we have more in common. Because if you just watch the news, or if you just turn on right. your, you know, favorite, whatever that reinforces your particular perspective, and particularly based on social media, it can often feel like that's not true. Right. So it's very rare that I feel like because I talk about election law and issues of politics and the law that anybody ever feels uplifting. So I'm glad that you could have that moment of optimism with us. <laughs> I did want to get back to one of the things that it seems to divide us in this pandemic, which is how we respond to COVID-19. And specifically, this choice that we seem to put in place between opening the country slash opening up the economy and uh, protecting people, protecting people from a very serious mm -hmm. disease. And you had a great article recently where you wrote about Republican governors who are trying to battle COVID-19 in their states. And my takeaway was Republicans throughout the country in leadership positions seem to have this choice between following President Trump or following the recommendations of public health experts. Are is that the choice that a lot of Republicans are facing? And are we seeing more Republicans as COVID-19 cases spike, separate themselves from President right. Trump? Well, I think that's what's been really interesting to watch, because in the early stages of the pandemic, um, some of these states, such as Florida, um, Georgia, uh, Texas, Arizona, um, they, they reopened fairly quickly. And they, you know, that they didn't, uh, if you listen to their elected leaders, they followed the leadership of President Trump, who at that time was not really you know, putting much emphasis on wearing a mask. I mean, he wouldn't be seen wearing a mask in front of the media. He made fun of Biden for wearing a mask. Um, but then, as we've seen this huge resurgence of the pandemic across this country, and notably in states like Texas, Florida, and Arizona, you've seen a real change in like the local leadership in that states, including Republican mayors who my colleague Melanie Mason and I spoke with, they really wanted to do more, but at the times they were precluded by their governors from doing more. But we've seen a complete you know, 180 on that where it's you know, once the numbers became what they are, I mean, and how it became just so clear how badly the, the, the pandemic was coming back and worse. Um, you know, we really saw a change of tune, both in terms of uh, slowing down the reopenings of the economy, sometimes taking a step back, um, in terms of really emphasizing wearing a mask, emphasizing social distancing. And we started to see it not only um, among the state leaders, but among uh, federal leaders who at times before had sort of, you know, been going along with the president. We saw it with um, the Senate. We saw it with Mitch McConnell, we saw it with Kevin McCarthy talking about, you know, wear a red, white, and blue mask on to celebrate 4th of July. Um, you know, we've seen Mike Pence now, the vice president, uh, frequently in public wearing a mask, including when he was in Arizona um, not so long ago and having a, a press conference about the importance of these things. And then finally, P President Trump, for the first time, he spoke positively about wearing a mask in an interview with Fox Business um, Network. And he also said he wore one and he thought he kind of looked like 
the Lone Ranger. Um, so it's, I heard it's, that. Been, it's, <laughs> it's been an interesting evolution on his part. So is this change in tone by Republican leaders of suddenly, yes, you should wear a mask or uh, potentially we should not be opening too quickly. Is this a result of changes in COVID-19, meaning that we are seeing these spikes that you talked about? Or is part of it that the president's response and that his coattails may be just dwindling and dwindling? I really, I think that it was seeing the numbers of uh, COVID-19, the infection numbers. You have cities in these states that do not have ICU beds anymore. You had, you know, the hospital system in Arizona basically put out the guidelines for how they would, you know, prioritize or triage their ICU units. And some of the things they would consider were, you know, how likely are you to recover? And if you do recover, how likely, how many more years do you likely have left? So, I mean, you know, when Sarah Palin talked about death panels, we are in effect in some parts of the country talking about a version of death panels because there's not enough staff and there aren't enough beds. And I think once that became so painfully clear, um, in the states, that's when you really saw people changing their tune. Is this the thing that finally caused Republicans to break with President Trump? Because that that's a question I've been asking myself, and, and this shows my opinion over the last almost four years, which is we keep seeing comments, sp- certain rhetoric, um, outright lies. And I always think, is this the thing that will cause the Republican establishment to say, I know you have this view, but we have to take a different path? Is the global pandemic what finally did that? I don't know. I mean, this is a question we've been asking ourselves since like the Access Hollywood tapes, right? Yes, exactly. Um, So nothing really seems to have yet. But, you know, I was out in Iowa um, a couple of weeks ago talking to voters. And I went to this part of the state where they'd had a lot of outbreaks um, because of meat processing plants. And every person I talked to in this area, they knew somebody who who either had it or had uh, unfortunately passed away from it. And when I talk to people, especially um, the Republicans in this part of the state, they largely – sometimes they were a little bit critical of the president's response, but they were also like, none of us has seen a, a pandemic like this before in our lifetimes. And they questioned whether anybody could have responded to it. Um, that was that was a little while ago. I do wonder as we go forward, you know, if you look at our response compared to other nations, you know, if, if you look at the per capita number of infections and the per capita number of deaths, they were clearly – leading almost every other country and nobody wants to be leading here. Um, so I do wonder if that'll continue to, if that'll m- make a difference as it gets closer to the election. But if you look at polling, I mean, he, the president has seen his, his approval of uh, handling of this crisis that it has declined, including among um, socially conservative voters, um, evangelical voters who are his most loyal supporters, but they still you know, overwhelmingly back him. So, I mean, I think there has been some notable drop in the polls in terms of his handling of the, of the matter, but does that make them not turn out for him? Does that make them suddenly go vote for Joe Biden? That, I think, is the open question. We're talking with Seema Mehta, a political reporter for the LA Times, who's covered now, this is your fourth presidential election, an election like no other, even though, as you said, it was always going to be an election like no other. And one of the things you recently wrote about is this issue that's fascinated me for a long time, which is the what you just mentioned, President Trump's support from evangelical voters, and specifically about evangelical voters really being focused on the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary. And I'm wondering if, based on your interviews, your reporting, your analysis, do you think Republicans are just better at explaining to voters the importance of the president being able to determine the face and shape of the federal judiciary? Um, 
I think both sides try to explain it. I think Republicans, I hear them speak about it more frequently. And I wonder if it's for, you know, for Republican voters, particularly for socially conservative uh, Republican voters, abortion has been such an issue for so long. You know, for decades, the you know, a primary goal has been overturning Roe v. Wade. So there's always that discussion about the courts and overturning, you know, this precedent. Um, on the Democratic side, like when you, I remember when I was in high school, there was a Supreme Court case. It was um, Casey versus Planned Parenthood. And this was a huge thing. I remember seeing stickers in the bathroom with like a bloody umbra- um, you know, hanger that said never again. And, you know, there being protests in, in the streets of Philadelphia. And, but since then, I don't feel like I hear as much emphasis on the left about abortion in terms of like some people talk about it, especially younger voters. Until very recently, they talked about it as sort of settled, a settled issue, a settled policy. They could, you know, they couldn't really imagine ever potentially going back to a world where, you know, where it was not legal um, across the nation. And so until, Recently, I feel like while you did have Democratic politicians talk about it, you had um, activists, you know, you Planned Parenthood, you know, et cetera. You talk about, you know, the need you know, to, for, to have judges to make sure that this decision is safe. I feel like I just haven't heard voters place as much emphasis on that, in part just because it felt like it was already settled. So I wonder if that's one of the, one of the differences. <laughs> Yeah, and right. It's all based on our experience of how pressing this is, which of course depends on your view and the state that you live in. So let's stay with the Supreme Court for a moment. And what we recently saw is that there was a big case out of Louisiana where the court struck down restrictions on abortion access. And I wonder if those decisions actually embolden Republican voters because they realize that it's really important to make sure that the Supreme Court isn't just five to four, that the Supreme Court is six to three right. in favor of restrictions on abortion access. And what do you think things like President Trump's appointee, Neil Gorsuch, writing the majority opinion in, in the Bostock case, the LGBTQ case dealing with mm. workplace discrimination, does that make evangelicals want to abandon President Trump because it's perceived that he didn't deliver with his appointments? Or does it have the other effect of saying we have to double down on the importance of a conservative Mm -hmm. judiciary? I mean, I've I've talked to people who have said both. I've talked to people who've said they felt defeated by some of the recent decisions, but or discouraged, but that they would continue to fight on, and that it emphasized the need for, as you said, you know, to not just have a five-four majority, but to have a six-three majority. Um, You know, to really this just highlights the need to get even more, you know, judges confirmed, um, conservative you know, judges confirmed. But then I have talked to people who said that, you know, I mean, in 2016, I remember being in Wisconsin, in a conservative part of Wisconsin, where the voters were not thrilled with Trump. They loved Pence, um, but they were sort of, you know, it, it kept coming up, like, he will we'll get judges. Like, so I would love to go back and talk to them and say, well, you're getting, you know, ask the question that, you know, you're getting judges, but are you really getting the decisions that you wanted or you expected? Um, and then the second thing is, though, you know, the, the election is not happening in a vacuum. If you're a socially conservative, pro-life voter, you probably are not going to be voting for a Democrat unless, I mean, in, in today's day and age, I mean, in terms of abortion policy, et cetera. So, I mean, the question is, you know, are will there be some measure of people who maybe stay home? Um, and that said, we also have had, we've, you know, we're going to see have a lot more rulings. And today there was a ruling um, involving birth control, and that was one um, that, went, that went conservatives way. So it's, it has been sort of a bit of a mixed bag in terms of the rulings we've seen come out. You said something that I keep thinking about, which is that maybe these evangelical voters or conservative voters or socially conservative voters will just stay home. And obviously the way we run for president is determined by not how many votes you get, but how many votes you get in the electoral college. And so 
presidential elections, you know better than anybody else, are focused on the swing voters and the swing states. And I wonder if looking at this race, is it your analysis that President Trump has basically given up on trying to get the so-called, you know, wobbler voters, those who could vote for a Democrat or a Republican, and that it's really just about turnout at this point? I mean, if you look at a lot of his statements in recent days, you know, whether it's going after NASCAR, some of the uh, stuff about the monuments, about the Confederate flag, it does seem like he's really, you know, trying to energize his base. Um, Some people would argue that some of his statements about safety are meant to appeal to suburban women who have, you know, who really abandoned Republicans in in the 2018 midterm elections. Um, But if you look at the overwhelming message right now, you know, in July, it really seems like he's trying to just energize and get as much of his base out as possible. Now I'm going to ask you every political reporter's least favorite question, which you don't have to answer. Sitting here in the beginning of July, would you handicap the race against President Trump, for President Trump? What do his reelection chances look like? I mean, after after 2016, I'm not, I was one of the many people who said we will we'll never make a prediction again after 2016. I mean, if you look at the polling today, you know, in, in early July, it you know, it looks like he has a difficult path, but there was so much time. And just look at everything that's happened this year that we never predicted would happen, whether it was, you know, um, social unrest over police brutality, a global pandemic. I mean, who who knows what's going to happen next? So, you know, there's still a lot of time and so much could happen for Election Day. Yeah, 2020, if you're listening, we're all about tapped out. My adrenal glands are just <laughs> done at this point. Exactly. I, can't, I, I can't do another uh, pandemic. Uh, civil unrest, all of these things are, um, I think we're, we're just about done. Uh, please save the locusts uh, for 2021 <laughs> at least. And so obviously this is another big question, which is there's still, a, there's still an issue of who is going to be on the bottom of the ticket for right. the, uh, for Vice President Biden. My assessment is that we're basically looking at California Senator Kamala Harris and some other people. Is that about right? Is she still the front runner? And um, who else should we be looking at? I mean, she's clearly a top tier candidate. I mean, but it's also been interesting how some of the things we just talked about, like, especially the unrest, has sort of changed, and the and the and the pandemic have, has impacted the pool of, uh, of finalists, um, you know, to be uh, Joe Biden's running mate. Because early on, you know, when when the pandemic first hit, when we saw a lot of attention on Michigan, um, Gretchen Whitmer, she was like a name that suddenly was, you know, was, was being bounced around a lot. Um, but as, you know, but her prospects appear to have faded, as well as Amy Klobuchar, um, her, her prospects appear to have faded, you know, as the unrest happened. And we saw people like um, the mayor of Atlanta, um, Mayor Bottoms, who her profile grew dramatically as she, you know, tried to stop people from basically burning down her city. And as she spoke like super emotionally from the heart about having, you know, African-American sons and her fears, you know, when they went out at night, um, you know, in, in the city that she led. Um, so it's it really been very fluid, but I think yeah, um, everyone's been talking about Kamala Harris for a long, a long time. The question is, I, you know, obviously Senator Harris and the former vice president had a bit of a spat during the democratic primary. It appears that the, the vice president has like put that behind him. Um, but I would like, my question is, how do they get along you know, behind the scenes? Um, and then you have, you know, he's obviously under pressure to pick, I mean, he said he's definitely going to pick a woman. He's under pressure to pick a woman of color. And there are a lot of women of color who are, you know, in his final uh, list. So um, it's just, it's interesting. It's like an unlike, uh, you know, any, also unlike any vice presidential process we've seen before, because, you know, we've only had two women on the ticket before as, you know, potential running mates. So it's, it's sort of, it's going to be historic, you know, whoever he does pick. It really 
brings it home for me when I have a young child and we read some stories about presidents and vice presidents. And when I open up the book and it shows the pictures of everybody who's either been a presidential or vice presidential nominee or winner, um, it's amazing to me that it is historic. And I have to think that that's why Vice President Biden said, I'm picking a woman and, mm-hmm. and that's that. And at this point, I think given the civil unrest, you know, the strong money is on a, a woman of mm-hmm. color who can uh, allow the ticket to look a little bit more like America, because that's right. certainly something we have not seen. I mean, our representative, this is for a whole other podcast, but our representatives simply don't look like us. Absolutely. And also for the vice president, I mean, African-American voters and African-American women in particular are the reason he is the nominee. Like, they saved him in South Carolina. And I wonder if there is a little, or no, I mean, you hear leaders talk about, you know, that he owes, you know, he owes them a little bit. Like, you know, stop just talking about us, you know, give us a seat at the table. So um, I think he's under pressure there, too. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Hopefully you'll come back before the election is over Mm -hmm. and we'll talk about you know, whether or not it really does matter also who you pick to be the vice presidential nominee. It seems like something that people like you and me love talking about, but then does it, is this an election where that actually could change the mind of some voters or is it going to be like always where it affects big donors for a couple of weeks and then we all kind of forget about it and just focus on the top of the ticket again? Right. I mean, it's, I, I, you know, people used to talk about you know, making a geographical decision. I don't think it matters for geography anymore. Like, you know, if, so if they pick somebody from your state, like, does that make you more likely to vote for a ticket? I don't, I, I'm a little skeptical of that. I mean, I do think sometimes it can change the trajectory of a race. I mean, John McCain clearly felt like he needed to shake something up when, um, in 2008, when he picked Sarah Palin and Sarah Palin's entry into the national political landscape, I think, uh, changed a lot of things. Um, I think, uh, Barack Obama, when he picked Joe Biden, he realized that he was weak on foreign policy and he needed somebody who knew foreign policy. And that, I think, maybe gave some comfort to some voter, some voters who may be worried about his lack of experience in that arena. So, I mean, is it going to move huge blocks of people? I don't know. But, um, I mean, I think, you know, who you picked does say something about, you know, who who you are as a candidate and what, you know, you, you feel like the, the nation needs at the moment. And in particular, I mean, you know, Joe Biden, he needs those really um, passionate Bernie Sanders supporters, he needs them to come out and to vote for him. And who he picks could be a signal to them. Right. It will say something about him, as you said, and it comes down to, as always, turn out, turn out, turn out. And unfortunately, I think we have to wrap up pretty quickly, but I don't want to let you go without asking, what's it like to be a member of the media during the Trump administration? And how has President Trump changed um, what it means to be a journalist? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think that before President Trump, there was, I mean, it's always, uh, and not, I don't want to say antagonistic, but there's always, a, you know, sometimes a, you, you're trying to get information from wh- whoever it is, whether it's a campaign or an administration, and they sometimes want to push back and they don't want to give you the administration information. I'm sorry. Um, so there is often a tension, but there was also an expectation that, you know, you will not out and out lie to me. Um, I will not you know, be unethical with you. And I think the, you know, unfortunately with the president's administration, we've seen, you know, some statements that we just know don't comport with reality, you know, starting from inauguration day and the the talk about the crowds. Um, So I think it's, it's difficult when the rules have sort of changed. Um, And the other thing is, I mean, you know, there's, 
I've covered uh, Democratic candidates. I've covered Republican candidates, and there's always some like hostility, you know, hostility towards the press. Um, but you, often it's sort of like, you know, like when you were covering Mitt Romney or or John McCain, it would be like, oh, the press, blah blah blah, and people would like jokingly boo. But then like, every, it's everyone was sort of in on. I don't want to say in on the joke, but everyone knew or respected that you had a role in the process, and. You know, if you're talking to reporter to voters afterwards, it's like, oh, the damn media. But I'm not talking about you, honey. You know, it's right. It's, and that it's those other people, exactly. Um, but that unfortunately has changed a little bit. And you know, going to Trump rallies, and it's it's more difficult to interview people. And most people will still talk, but it is a little bit harder to get people to talk. And on the campaign in 2016, the hostility at times at those rallies felt very, very real, and that was new to me. The only other time I felt like that was like with, with Sarah Palin rallies in 2008. It's interesting. So from my perspective, it feels qualitatively different. And I feel, frankly, scared for you and other members of the media who I know. I spoke about this topic with Carla Marinucci of Politico, which brings us to something that we had to talk about, which is our mutual love of Golden Girls. Yes, absolutely. And I asked Carla, what's the first thing that you're going to do uh, once it's safe after COVID-19. And I kind of pushed her into the idea that it would be watching the Golden Girls uh, with you and me. Is that a, that's a fair that assessment, I assume. Of, that would be fantastic. I assume that's at the very top of your list. Nothing else before that? No, I mean, what else could you, the only thing that would top that would possibly be the Golden Girls cruise with the, all of us, because that would be fantastic. I, I'm not at, being a germaphobe, I'm not at the place where I can envision a cruise anytime yeah. soon. Maybe. Maybe for you I'm and not a Carla, person, but the, the idea of a, of a ship full of women dressed up like Estelle Getty, et cetera, it would be amazing. I think that I might be just for the two of you and the experience. <laughs> I might be able to put on a hazmat suit and a smile <laughs> and make it happen. Mm-hmm. And finally, um, a guide for our listeners: How can we stay up to date on what's happening in the world of politics? Well, I must shamelessly plug LATimes.com, so please come visit us and subscribe. Um, but in addition to that, the things I try to read, I always read Politico, both um, the National Politico and Cal- the California Politico, which is run by Carla, who does a fantastic job. Um, and then I try to read Axios. I try to read, I mean, I'm basically my, I subscribe to the New York Times, the Washington Post, um, and the Atlantic. So those are like my main go-tos like, in terms of everyday coverage. And then I hate to tell people to spend time on social media like Twitter because most of it is just a total, you know, time suck. But every now and then, I feel like if I can just watch it a little bit just to figure out what people are talking about, you know, when I wake up, like, I think it's useful then. But then get off it. Like, you know, go live your real life and go outside and talk to real people, um, not people on your computer screen. Now, I want to end with the same three questions that I've been ending with for all of our guests. And we learned a lot about the election. We learned a lot about what we should be looking for uh, over the next few months. And now I want to learn a little bit more about you. Um, which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? See, I would normally say Betty White because um, because of the aforementioned love of the Golden Girls as well as her love of animals. And like there's an otter named after her at the aquarium because she gives all this money in, uh, anonymously in Long Beach. So that's my normal answer. But my answer today is a little bit different because the president's niece is obviously out with a, a very controversial book. And a lot of it's about her father, who you know has passed away. Um, and so I'm intrigued by Fred Trump Jr. and the stories he could tell about the president as a boy and as a young man. That would be some great insight. Because don't we ask, frankly, with every president, what made you who you are today? And mm-hmm. perhaps even more so with this particular president. Right. 
Um, next question. You're stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal. What is it? Sushi. That was fast. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> always. Get, always sushi. Any particular kind? Uh, I mean, just all of it. <laughs> I. Okay. So now I know what we're going to order when you right. and me and Carla watch. <laughs> sushi, period. Uh, well, for Carla, she makes her own pizza. So we can have a buffet style. That's fine. Ooh. And you get one superpower for an hour. What is it? To know when somebody's lying. Oh, that's a great one for a journalist. Well, you are one of the real people who I talk to on and off the computer screen, mm -hmm. and you stole my last line, which is, we can read your articles at the LA Times. I am a physical and digital subscriber. Excellent. I'm very thankful for what you do. And we can find you on Twitter at L-A-T-SEMA, that's S-E-E-M-A, and Seema Mehta, thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you so much for having me on. This is so much fun. So thank you to the listeners for being with us for another episode of Passing Judgment. Please listen, subscribe, and rate us. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica. The show's Twitter is Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Thank you again, and we will see you next time.